Again, our scripture reading is Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, the king of, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. Selah. Let's go to the word, go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Savior and our King, we ask that you be with me today as I lift up your word, as we examine a psalm that proclaims your kingship, your victory, your exaltation. May we see your grace poured out for us, and may we recognize our place as worshipers, as undeserved sinners who have been saved by grace. O Lord, may we exalt you. May we praise the King of glory. Amen. Today we have Psalm 24. Uh, The book of Psalms is arranged uh, in various thematic elements, and Psalm 22, 23, and 24 comprise a, a shared status of recognizing Psalm 22, the cross, the work of Christ, Psalm 23, the crook, the shepherding of Christ, and Psalm 24, the exaltation and kingship of Christ. So we're, we're jumping into this, the, the high point, the conclusion of these three elements of the Psalms. And what we have before us is the exaltation of God and primarily the kingship of God over his creation. We're going to examine, let me read the first two verses here. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We have here four elements, four elements of God's kingship established. Number one, we see his power in the creation of the world. Number two, we see his priority in that he is the owner and the possessor of the world. Number three, we see a provision of God in his fulfilling or the fullness of the earth. And we see God's providence in the floods, the streams, the rivers, and the course to which he directs his creation. So we're going to examine these things. First, David is pulling to our mind the creation account of Genesis. In Genesis 1, it says... 
And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. This is God's first encounter with creation. And we see the, the power of it in that he speaks from speaks to creation that does not exist and calls it into existence. Something that did not came to be. And this is the power of God proclaimed. That he directs everything, that he charges and commands things, and they obey. And we're going to see this as a theme throughout this, as the kingship of God. The king is one who commands his subjects, and they respond in obedience. We see this in the Genesis account that continually there is the declaration of something happening and the result is it obeys and God says, this is good. God saw that it was good. So the goodness of God is proclaimed and the power of God. We also see the ownership being recognized here in God's power because uh, he is the owner for he has established, for he has founded this creation It rests in him as his property. And Jesus uses the example in the parables of God as an owner of a vineyard, a master who directs the course and aim of those in his employ to go out and do his bidding, to order and direct it. And because God is the owner, because God possesses it, he has the right to employ it or to dispose of it as he sees fit. And this is his found the, the establishing of the rivers. I want to direct you to an element of uh, this founding of the seas. The founding of the seas is the foundation stone. It's like the base point from which everything else builds up from. So just as it is the very foundation of Christ's kingship being established in this psalm for us, it's the foundation for all of God's works in creation, that he does things in his world and in his earth. And this leads us to understanding God's priority as the creator. He comes first. All of our, um, man is a creation, creature, sorry. Man is a creature and a creation of God. And so we are subordinate to the will of God. We are to fit into God's program, what God calls us to. Ecclesiastes mentions at the close of the book, the end of the matter All has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the the mean, this is the, the purpose of man on the earth, is to actually obey God, to fear him. And this was the good calling that man was called to in his original creation. Now God also provides the fullness. We see that there, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth belongs to God, and because it belongs to him, he also lays claim to all the benefits that are result of the fruitfulness and the filling of the earth. Man's charge was to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to subdue it, to move out from the Garden of Eden upon the earth. And this fullness that we have seen time and time throughout Scripture, God lays claim to as he owns that as well. He is the possessor of all the earth. There is a, there's a further recognition here in the establishing upon the rivers of God's power. When we look in the book of Genesis, we see the seas being separated in chapter 1 there. But we also see later on in the, um, in the elements of, 
I'm sorry, this portion did not get written in here. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We have a division by streams. God calls attention to this when he uh, creates man and calls him to a purpose. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So here we see God is delineating his creation and structuring it as regions, areas where nations, we see the statement of Assyria there. We see that this is God's ordering and normative practice in setting the boundaries of his creation. He expects man to expand and to operate in these places. And God directs and, um, directs and places men in these places. We see that through the Tower of Babel when men rejected God. They did not fill the earth as they were supposed to. And so he um, stopped, their, stopped their corrupting practice of staying where they were and forced them to spread out upon the land. And all of this is supposed to press upon our minds by David in the psalm that God is in charge. God is king. He is the one who establishes all these things. Another important observation is that David assumes that the account of Genesis is true. It's not mythical. It is not something that um, is ahistorical, but it is a historical fact that God created the world. Because if God did not create it, his claim to the possession of the earth is fraudulent. So we cannot hold to a mythical account of creation, but a actual account, a historical narrative of Genesis. And in this good creation, we immediately are brought into the second aspect of David's psalm. When he says... Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? There is a ethical recognition of the goodness of God who provides things. He provides the fullness and he demands the obedience of people in his creation. And yet who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Because all men are fallen. All men are tainted with sin. Every aspect of our being is fallen. Our minds, our hearts, our wills. We are not submitted to God. And he cries out, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Where is this one? I want to focus, too, on what this hill of the Lord is. The occasion for this psalm is most likely the, the return of the ark from the... From the um, um, Philistines, sorry. From the Philistines to... The, to Jerusalem, specifically Mount Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham uh, went to sacrifice his son Isaac. Mount Moriah is the future a location of the temple. Mount Moriah is where the tabernacle rested in the intervening times before the temple is built. So this hill of Yahweh, this hill of the Lord, is a holy place. It is something set apart for the worship of God. It is some place where there is only righteousness. It is a picture, the physical place, 
of Mount Moriah is a picture of the heavenly throne room of God, where we see only righteousness. God surrounded only by his angels and those who practice what is, what is right and holy, who are devoted to Yahweh. And here we have the question, who shall ascend this hill for man is fallen? If a fallen man stands in the place of a holy God, he is brought to nothing. He is undone. He is torn apart. There is continual, continual refrain of, G- of Jesus in his gospels that those who do not repent, those who do not believe, are cast out where there is gnashing, wailing. There is horror to those who attempt to stand in God's presence without a covering. That's going to bring us into the recognition of he who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is one who can stand. One who has clean hands, this is someone who... the, the, The idea here of clean hands is that you are washing yourself. You yourself need cleansing from outside yourself. You are not sufficiently clean. You need something external to yourself to clean you. And in Exodus 30, the Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze, and its stand of bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put, it, put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their feet, they shall wash their hands and their feet. When you go into the tent of meeting and where they come near the altar to minister to burn food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generation. This is an act of God's mercy being displayed to his people. He knows they are unclean. They are unfit to enter before him. And God provides a means by which Aaron and his sons forever should clean themselves and present themselves before the Lord. Now this action was merely an external practice, but it pictured a heavenly reality. The heavenly reality being the provision of Christ's atoning sacrifice being applied to our behalf. Of Christ cleansing our hearts, turning our hearts from stone to flesh. And in David's psalm, he says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart shall ascend the hill of the Lord and shall stand in his holy place. So this is twofold. One, we have the responsibility of man that he is unable to do this. Number two, we have the Christological effect, the work of Christ on our behalf actually doing this because he is the perfect God-man. He was incarnate on the earth. And we have the responsibility that we, in light of the work of Christ, can stand in the holy presence of God. We can come before him and pray. We can, come bef- we can live before him. And so we need to examine the pure heart aspect. Because the, ex- the, the work of righteousness, while required here, he who has clean hands, the hands of the instruments that perform work, we have to have good works. But the pure heart is an identifier that is deeper than just our external actions. Those are necessary, God says here. Not for our, not to, for our salvation to be saved, but in order to stand in his presence. And so this pure heart is one that according to Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
In Deuteronomy 5.29 says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God demands a purity of heart, a purity of the inward man. That within us must be pure. We cannot seek after our own desires, our own wills. In Numbers 15, God gives the people of Israel a requirement that they wear tassels on their clothing. Not only tassels, but that they tie blue ribbon on the ends of each of those tassels. The purpose of that is stated. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassels of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at it and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. This is the nature of the fallen man, is to follow our own desires, to seek our own betterment for our own ends, to determine good and evil in our own stead, not to obey the commandments of the Lord, not to do them. This is what we are inclined to. And so the purity of heart recognizes that we are challenged in that regard. We are unable to clean ourselves. The very nature of clean hands means something external to ourself. This is one of the maxims of the Hebrew people. Yahweh will save us. Our salvation does not come from ourselves, our own works, because our own works are as filthy rags. Outside the blood of Christ, any effort that we do with our hands is tainted with sin. We are tainted with the unrighteousness of our thoughts and that extends to our actions. And so David is identifying here that there is... Oh, I skipped one section. Beautiful. Oh, double-sided. There it is. <laughs> the, 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 com- the charge here before us in our text of Psalm 24, right, is that there's four things required. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false, nor does he swear deceitfully. This false deceit, this falsehood, is something that contrasts faithfulness. Right? We have the responsibility to fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness, according to Joshua. And this, this faithfulness is always challenged. To be set apart wholly for the cause of God, to, if we diverge from that at any point, we enter into falsehood. We enter into a false representation of God. The, one of the most telling examples is when Israel was redeemed out of out of Egypt, the Exodus, right? They come across the Red Sea. They've seen the mighty power of God. They've been delivered from the hosts of Pharaoh's armies. And Moses goes up on the mountain and he's gone just a little bit longer than they're patient for. And so they convince Aaron to take all their gold and build for them a golden calf. And they don't outright reject Yahweh. They just ascribe Yahweh's name to this golden calf who is their now newfound deliverer. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. A work of our own hands, a work of our own, um, our own efforts, and this is syncretism. 
This is the syncretism that affects us every day as well. We are challenged continually um, by media, by culture, in the workplace, everything. Christianity is a harsh religion. Christianity is dangerous. It leads to death and violence and wars. Religion is nothing but the result is, it leads to nothing but wars. It's the continual refrain. And yet, if we believe the word of God, then we believe that the truth of scripture leads to peace and reconciliation because that's the message of the gospel. That fallen men can be redeemed. And so, this falsehood is something that we cannot lift ourselves up to and we must identify these falsehoods in us. The fourth requirement is not to swear deceitfully. This is something that, um, unless we've been in a courtroom, it's, it's usually difficult to recognize here, but this is, a, this is one who has perjured himself under oath. To swear deceitfully is one who attests to, they put their hand on the Bible, and they say, I'm going to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. And then they go and tell a falsehood. They tell a lie. They swear deceitfully. And this is someone who cannot enter into the presence of God. Proverbs 12 says, Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. And so this leads us to see in our present day problems of authenticity or keeping it real. Those are dangerous if we ascribe to those things the natural condition of fallen man. If we assume that being authentic means just being myself who I am, that can be a very dangerous thing, and we do not uh, declare the truth of what God commands about us. We are supposed to live consistently, not hypocritically, so we cannot live a life that is... uh, I'm assuming something here. When I say swear, I mean, I, I assume the understanding of an oath and covenant. That's, that's the undergirding element here and what David is recognizing. That when we swear something, we're taking an oath and a covenant that if it is violated, we bear consequences. We shall be, uh, in the case of something like Abraham, when Abraham and God, make, God makes a covenant with Abraham, Abraham is asleep and God passes between the cut rams and the cut bulls and the cut doves is symbolizing that if I forsake on this promise of this covenant, I take the punishment that was retributed on these animals upon myself. So it's a very, very serious thing to swear deceitfully because you will bear the punishment of that deceit. And so this hypocrisy is seen by John. John 4 says, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. So this is the attestation of, I love God. This is the God I love. And yet, if at any point we depart from that true love of what God requires of us, or we say something to the effect of, well, my God would never do this. My God would not, uh, would not uh, send people to hell. This, that's a... It's a dangerous aspect in one who swears deceitfully because you are not portraying the truth of who God is. God is a jealous God. He is a righteous God. He is a holy God. He is to be glorified. So, this is why in this these four elements of righteousness, clean hands, pure heart, not swearing deceitfully, not lifting up one's soul to what is false... All of this 
should put a high bar before our eyes of what is required of the character of man and that he is incapable, that we are incapable of doing this. But the incredible contrast here, the incredible result of one who does stand in that place is that he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The, the blessing of the Lord here is actually pictured in, in the literal rendering of the phrase, he shall bear away a blessing of God. It's more than just a proclamation of blessing, good tidings to you. This is actually something that is heaped upon in abundance, these blessings. It should recall to our minds uh, the, the, the numerous and plenteous blessings that are outlined in, in Deuteronomy 28 to the people of Israel. It should put into our mind also the Beatitudes of the Gospels when Jesus preaches on the Sermon on the Mount, the many blessings. Luke says, this is an important thing to remember, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? And dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. And so this blessing is something that God pours out in abundance out of his generous kindness. It is not something we merit. It is not something we can earn. This is something... That it is simply our duty, our responsibility is do what is right. Anything less than that falls short of the mark, and just doing that merits no no words of thanks. Because that is our responsibility, that is our duty. And yet, God provides a blessing. He provides this blessing. And in this blessing, he also provides righteousness. And we see this. In Proverbs 8.35, when it says, For whoever finds me, I'm sorry, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. And also in Proverbs 16, In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. So there is favor in the presence of a king when one seeks to find him. One seeks to recognize the kingship of God. And this is, this is all the more in, incredible when we think that God has called us friends and sons. No longer are we those who are the reprobate, those who are outside the faith. But God actually, this is a, this is a title ceremony. A, um, we, we think of it modernly, we call it a um, graduation ceremony or commencement ceremony where we move from one level to another. Uh, the historic element of that is a vestiture ceremony where you are actually vested with responsibility. It has its roots in the Roman legions and the Greek legions where someone would be given their first command and they would be presented a sword and a group of troops and responsibility to go forth and conquer. And this here is that kind of a ceremony where Yahweh bestows the designation of righteousness upon this person. This righteousness is something outside of themselves, but given to them to take forth and live in terms of. So in, in this obtaining favor from the Lord, this 
good gift of God, we are no longer uh, the, the unrighteous, but we are called the righteous in Christ. And we receive these riches and rewards. And this marks also a return and a, re- a recognition of the fruitfulness of the original passage. The fullness thereof, that refers to the fruitful filling. There is supposed to be an abundance of righteousness here. Not just we are made righteous, but now we go forth practicing righteousness. As Titus says, we are now zealous for good works. The wicked and the impure cannot attain this. And so, this is a matter of salvation for God's people. Salvation does not mean escape. Commonly, we, there is, um, in the church I grew up in, salvation was often pictured as getting out of this world and getting to heaven quickly. But salvation is deliverance and restoration. When God saved his people out of Egypt, he removed them from the oppression that pictured sin and death. And he set them on a course of life and the pursuit of that which is righteous in fulfilling the require, the fulfilling the requirements of the law by his grace. Not by their own efforts, not by their own works. And so salvation is a restoration to man's original calling. To live victoriously in the work that Christ has secured for us. And we see here... In verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This, there's, there's an alternate rendering, you'll notice on this verse 6, in the, in the margins. Both of them essentially point to the same thing. But the, the second reading says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Jacob. So this is, both of these are in, its, in intent recognizing that not all of Jacob, not all of Israel, seek after God. There is a portion. This is the generation of, this is the people, this is the race of those, this is the identity of those who are Jacob, who seek your face, O God. So this should, this should be a very humbling and very searching thing. Where Peter says, to make sure your calling and election. This here is also, likewise, that kind of statement in the Old Testament. That this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. They are ones who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not lift up their soul to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. These are the generation of those who seek him. These are the type. They are marked out by God, and they are called forth, We should strive, strive to make that calling and election sure. Do not take your Christianity for granted. Do not assume that because you were born into a Christian home, that that merits you something, that you are a Christian because of that. There has to be a heart change. There has to be an orientation shift. Repentance is the word from it. Turning from sin turning to righteousness. So this is, again, identifies the priority of God in that we seek the face of God. We should not be content to just exist as Christians, but we need to pursue something. This here seeks the face of, the glory of God. This seeks to exalt his name, to exalt his praise, to lift him high as the king of creation. 
the one who has saved us, and the one who is victorious. So as we, as we turn to the third section, we have, let me summarize here. Yahweh has laid claim to all the earth in its increase. Yahweh has strict requirements of who can stand in his presence. Yahweh provides blessing and righteousness to those whom he saves. And Yahweh is sought after by those who properly belong to God as his children. In light of this work being accomplished in his people, we have the great victory procession into the city of Jerusalem. And again, if we think of this in terms of the movement of the ark from um, the captivity to the high place in Jerusalem, the ark itself, I want to read the description of the ark, if I may, if I find it here, because I did prepare that. One second. Double-sided printing threw me off. (laughs) All right, I will describe it to you. The Ark of the Lord is built with two seraphim placed on its side. In the center is the mercy seat, and above the mercy seat resides the Shekinah glory of God. This mercy seat is the throne of God. It is his seat on the earth. It represents the throne room of heaven, and his mediation from the glory of God to his people has to proceed through the seat of mercy. Because without mercy, God would strike us dead. Because we are sinners. And so this, this ark is being brought back in. This is the processional of the great king. And we read here, this is a, a, a psalm that splits now into a song of response. There's two voices singing here. You have the head of the column marching to the city, and they are saying, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the response from the city, the response from the people on the walls, says, Who is this king of glory? The column again responds, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And they cry again, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the city once again responds, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts is the response from the column. He is the king of glory. It's a huge, I I, I hate to call it a charade, but it's a picture, it's a pageantry. It's put on for the benefit of the people as they march up the hill of God. Because they are all of these people are marching to ascend the hill of the Lord. And so the recognition is that this throne is the throne of the king. This is the one who delivered us. This is the one who established the foundations of the earth. This is the one who saves. And this is the one who is now strong and mighty, mighty in battle. He is victorious over his enemies. He is the Lord of hosts. And let's examine this. In returning from battle, uh, the historic element, we, we have uh, city parades. We go, we sit on the lawn, we watch the processional of people march by. We see the marching bands, we see the scooters, we see the politicians running for office. All of these are either seeking victory or proclaiming something beneficial, something good. And it stems from the, the historical work of a king who returns from battle and he would parade the, 
all his trophies of war, all his enemies that he has subdued, uh, the, the foreign king would be brought in shackles of iron. The foreign enemies uh, would be brought as slaves. All these things would be brought and ushered into the city to proclaim the might and power of the one who had conquered. And this is the picture that we see here. Yahweh has accomplished salvation for his people. Yahweh has vanquished his enemy. And he has secured the victory by faith. And the demand as he enters into the city is lift up your heads, O gates. We, we don't have gates of cities anymore. We have freeways that drive right into them. But the gate of a city in ancient days was its, its weakest point, And so it's most reinforced by battlements. And you would have the lintel is what's above the a doorway. And upon that would be usually some kind of um, military element that would prov- uh, provide protection for people coming in. And the requirement here is lift up your heads, O gates. This is the top part. It needs to be dismantled. It needs to be removed. The king of glory must come in. If you remember, if anybody has seen the movie Aladdin, they will have seen, um, whether the old or the remake, a, a great procession for Prince Ali coming into the city. It is through the narrow gateway as they enter into the courtyard. And the picture is that Prince Ali is so big, his head is basically touching the top of that archway. And that is the picture here, that God's head, God's crown, his glory is so impressive, so magnificent, that the the top of the gates must be torn down, that his glory might fit through. This is the righteousness of the God being attested. Heads also has reference to the chief magistrates. The gates are the position of judgment and authority of a city. And so we have here a hearkening to Psalm 2, where it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is a call and a command to subject ourselves every area of our life, to the lordship, the kingship of Yahweh. This return from battle is also indicative of John chapter 12, where it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This here is referring to Satan, to the power of sin and death that he exercises over the sons of Adam. And instead of that power now, a new judgment is entering into the world. One of righteousness, one of truth, of Christ seated on his throne. And as I already described, the mercy seat. Hebrews 2 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Here Jesus is crowned with glory and honor and is said to be seated at the right hand of God, majesty on high, reigning as king. Corinthians likewise attests to this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And so when the people are crying out, who is this king of glory? They're asking, what are the merits of the one who comes forward? What have they, what has he accomplished that we should dismantle the city? What is it that, why is it that he demands so much? And it's because Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. He is this king of glory. This victory that he has accomplished is so great that he is putting all things in subjection under his feet so that he might deliver a subject kingdom unto his father. This starts in the life of men and women. It starts in us as he subdues us who were once his enemies. Scripture says, we who were once at enmity with God are now called sons, heirs, friends, even co-workers in in the preaching of the gospel and the proclamation of his kingdom. This is the, this is the benefit. This is part of the gifts poured out. We see the subjection of the enemies of God. Mighty in battle, he goes forth to wage war. I believe Psalm 110, I did not write this one down, so we're, I'm going to turn there quickly. Psalm 110 says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here we see that the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. This is Christ going forth from Zion to subdue his enemies. And we see two forms of enemies. I mentioned the one. It starts with us being converted to the faith. Repenting and putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is by the grace he offers. There is a second form. A more brutal form of subjection that Christ will have. And this is when scripture says that all Every knee will bow before the face of Jesus Christ. Everyone will profess truthfully that he is Lord. Psalm 2 puts it in this picture, and it is rather gruesome. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There are those who will come willingly to God because he has afforded them a spirit. He has called out and they have answered in repentance and faith. And there are those who will remain obstinate and remain false and continue to swear deceitfully, to have impure hearts, to have impure hands, and to work evil. They shall be broken with a rod of iron and be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. So we need to abandon the hippie version of Jesus, the long flowing locks, the one who only teaches love. Our God is a wrathful God. Our God calls and demands response. Revelation fourteen eleven says, and the smoke of their torment, those who are punished for following after the beast, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever in the presence of the lamb. 
Jesus Christ is the God of hell as much as he is the God of heaven. This is a serious matter. Because instead of having a party in hell with all our friends, as my coworkers are often to remark, this is a, this is a tormentuous time if we are outside the faith, if we remain unrepentant, and we do not proclaim the kingship of God. So I want to focus now on this very last element, the second response to the city. If God's victory and might in battle is not enough, why do they ask a second time? Who is this king of glory? A second time they ask, why should we dismantle the ramp, the, the lintel? Why should we tear down the heads of the gates? The answer is given, Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. This, this host element, Ephesians is written about, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Host is a picture all throughout scripture of the stars of heaven as they're ordered in the sky, as they present themselves in orderly fashion at night and they set at the rising of the sun. These hosts are nearly innumerable. They are a mass multitude. They are the victory, the result of Christ's victory being paraded through the streets. And we see at the, at the judgment seat of God, he will be surrounded by the innumerable angels and 10,000 upon 10,000 of those who have faith in him to those who have believed in the Lord. This is a wonderful and victorious faith that sees a host of captives being set free. Seeing the work of Christ not extending just into this local body, but we see it throughout the world. We see it in other bodies of believers. And we see it in as new new people groups are introduced to the gospel. As new people are brought into faith, they are led as a host of captives. They are set free. And they are given the gifts of God, the blessings of righteousness. And so in light of all of this, this king of glory who, who claims ownership of all things, who provides good gifts for his people, and who is exalted as the mighty king, what are some applications for us specifically that we can apply in our lives today? The first is to always remember that we cannot work for our own cleansing. Everything that we do must be by faith. We must believe that the Lord has called us to this work and that it is fruitful in terms of God's working through us, not on our own effort. And second, this application specifically is for believers. All these good work, all these good blessings that come about are for those who have repented and believed. There is there's no faithful application of God's law, God's word, unless we are believers in Christ, unless we have repented and believed. And so when we look at our emotions, they must be governed by, by God. We cannot have a true zeal for God unless we direct our emotions to the glory of God. Just being um, erupted into a frenzy is not sufficient. And having, having a God said this to me moment, it has to be governed by the word of God. 
It has to be tested against what God has said. Is this in alignment with his word? We also need to flee youthful lusts and immoral passions. Joseph, when tempted by Potiphar's wife, immediately fled. He did not sit still. He did not contemplate, oh, is this something I can get away with? He ran. To the fathers and sons out there, memorize Proverbs 7, Proverbs 31, and Job 31. Proverbs 7 identifies the dangers that will assault us in the culture around us. Those who would seek to tear down what God has called us to as men. Proverbs 31 identifies what we ought to look for in righteous women, for a righteous spouse. And Job 31 identifies our covenant relationship with God and that we are not to violate that. Our eyes are sacred in that they take in the world around us and they communicate to our mind what we see. And that needs to be governed. We need to see something immoral is not a sin. To look back at it and to, to desire it, that is certainly a sin. So we must have our eyes and our mind trained to practice righteousness. So men, ground yourself daily in the practice of meditating and studying the word of God so that you might know how to apply it in your life and then if you are married, in the life of your family, to your wife, to lead her in truth. You cannot lead if you do not know where you're going. Establish a vision for your family, one that sees the ownership of the world and your place in it as belonging to God. Fathers and mothers, proclaim the virtues of godly forebearers of the faith to your children. There are countless, there's a number of them, it's not countless. There are, there are characters, people in the Bible who are held up to us as examples of true virtue, of true faith. And there are people throughout history who have exhibited themselves in godly manners. Teach and extol those virtues to your children. So that when they encounter other children, or they encounter other people, they are not influenced in a negative way as to what is righteousness and what is truth. Children, submit yourselves to the teaching of your parents. This is important because it teaches you how to live in terms of authority. You will be out from under the authority of your parents one day, and you will be directly responsible to God in a weightier way. Then how do we identify false gods and deceitful input into our lives? This is one that is very much overtaking our culture today is uh, films, media, social media. The encounters with things like that, if we shut our brain off when we watch something, we are immediately opening ourselves up to be affected by that. So we need to have a recognition of what are false ideologies. What are the false worldviews that are we are encountering? Are we able to identify them? Can we speak to those things as righteous or unrighteous? We need to be careful about what we watch and read. And we need to be able to counter. We had a men's breakfast and um, a story was shared where... There was a recognition for we need to prepare our children for how to encounter the false worlds, the false um, uh, 
perspective on, like, marriage. Marriage is only between a man and a woman. And yet, it is very, very um, confusing in its approach of how the, uh, the teachers of our schools are teaching children these things. It is a... It cuts across the grain of Scripture, and it is a violation of it. We need to identify those things and teach our children regarding that. And then finally, how are we grounding our economic perspective to God? I want to share with you, in 1835, I believe, Queen Victoria was on the throne, so a long time ago. The height of the British Empire was um, in its heyday. And we have the Royal Exchange in London that uh, had been burnt down a couple times and was being rebuilt for the third time. This building still stands today. The inscription that sits upon it, immediately above its entrance, says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It was set there uh, by the, not the king, the cohort to the throne, I believe it's called. He said it there because he wanted to instill in the minds of all the merchants, both domestic and foreign, that all their labors, all their work, and all their skill was to be rendered to the glory of God. That everything that they did at this royal exchange for the benefit of the British Empire was also for the benefit and ultimate glory of Jesus Christ. We have come far from that in our our places of trading. I don't think... uh, U.S. Stock Exchange has any concept of the Lord being the ruler of the earth. And yet we need to focus on those things. The first fruits and the firstborn are an element of Scripture. Where the principle of that still maintained today is that the first of our efforts, the strength of our hand, the thing that we are, have the most energy for is to be dedicated and consecrated to the Lord. Not our leftover energy. Not when we're tired and strung out. But that we should be focused to pursue the kingdom of God and its righteousness with our initial efforts. That is what is set forth for us. And so finally, ground everything in the pattern of the Psalms. Cleansing first. Be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Practice righteousness and account of what God has accomplished through us. And the blessings of fruitfulness as the benevolent and gracious mercy of our great King of glory shall attend to us. Let us pray. Our great Father in heaven, you are our King. You are our God. You are our Maker. You have provided for us so many bountiful things. You have set us in creation to rule over the works of your hands. You've called us to a high thing. One that we are incapable of doing without your covering, without your grace, without your mercy, without your spirit indwelling us. Cause us today to fear you all the more. To trust in you. To look outside ourselves for every work of righteousness. That we might be faithful and true because we love to serve you because we know what you have called us to. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.